Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Now, as many of you already know, this show is member-supported. What I mean by that is that it's entirely made possible through the contribution of members. And my way of thanking members for being part of this project is to provide little extras on the members-only feed. For example, I just released the last part of my interview with Dr. Andrew Jones from the Jorvik Viking Center. In total, there's nearly two hours of in-depth discussion on the Viking settlement of Jorvik, or York as you know it, and their rather disgusting habits. For example, in this final installment, we chatted about how they were essentially living on a gigantic compost heap and dealt with seasonal maggot infestations. They left that part out of the History Channel Viking show, didn't they? Anyway, so that's what's going on over there on the members-only feed. Additionally, Chris and I have been working on producing a series of interactive visual timelines to help you visualize the scale of time that we're discussing. Now, these timelines are in beta status, so don't expect them to be 100% complete yet, but I will provide a link to them on our forums if you're interested in checking them out. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums, and you'll find them under the Further Research category. Okay, on with the show. So it's 568, and things in what will someday become England are still chaotic. Remember what was going on up north in Bernicia, where Ida, who was probably part of some sort of Anglian group, had taken control of Bamber, and then he died, and then his son started taking over for him, but they kept on dying. Well, that's still going on, and it looks like Ada is probably dead. Maybe. It's really muddy. And like I mentioned earlier, he probably was the king who was fighting with the Brits and killed a number of their kings. Maybe. But sometime around now, Ada is no longer king of Bernicia, and the throne is held by his brother, Athelric, we think. You know, Bernicia is so chaotic, and Ida had so many sons, and they had so many problems with their neighbors, that I feel like I should have a sound effect for every time that one of the sons of Ida croaks. Hey, that should work. So let's see. We have Ida, possibly Glappa, and Ada, all replaced on the throne of Bernicia. So I still owe you two more Wilhelm screams. So that's what's going on up in the north for the most part. We don't have a ton of details, but it looks like it's not exactly the most placid of kingdoms. And what about down south? Well, Chalen and Cutha pushed that young rascal, King Athelbert of Kent, out of Wessex. And after the last couple episodes, you might be wondering how those two kings found each other. After all, Wessex is a pretty big territory. And if you're dealing with battles that really look more like small skirmishes, how do you find your enemy? A Roman army of 20,000 would be a lot easier to find than a Kentish army that probably numbered in the dozens, or maybe the hundreds, if he's really calling up all the troops. So how do armies find each other in those circumstances? Well, one of the things that's interesting about the records that we have of this era is that a lot of the battles occur at known crossings, ruins, and locations. They're not just in some random field, but rather they're battles that took place at spots that people would have known. So that's led some scholars to believe that this was all part of the ritual of battle. That if you were an invading army, you would march in and set up camp at a well-known location and just wait. The mere presence of your forces in your enemy's kingdom would force him to come out and meet you, since he'd lose face to do anything else. So there's a good chance that that's exactly what Athelbert did with Chalin. But Wessex came out fighting, and so tough break for Athelbert there. 
In fact, Wessex was so powerful that three years later, we hear of the Battle of Bedkin Ford. That's where Cuthwolf, and we don't really know a lot about him, but this guy might have been Chalin's brother, fought the Brits at, you guessed it, Bedkin. Anyway, this was an important fight because he managed to significantly expand the holdings of Wessex. And we know that because we're told that Cuthwolf's victory resulted in Lensbury, Aylesbury, Benson, and Einsham all coming under Wessex control. So now, if you're looking at a map, you're probably going to notice that these territories seem like they should be deep within the domain of the Anglo-Saxons. I mean, you're talking about territories that were within 40 miles of London. Yet we still have Wessex fighting the British. It just seems a little bit strange. However, like we've been chatting about over the last few months, this wasn't a uniform conversion and conquest by the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It was patchy and haphazard. And things weren't predestined either. Looking back, we read about the Brits and the Anglo-Saxons and know which way it's going to go. But back then, they had no idea. And that makes Cuthwolf's conquest really interesting. I mean, was it a result of insecurity? Were they trying to solidify their holdings because having British communities so close to their own lands was giving them the heebie-jeebies, especially with Athelbert sitting on the eastern flank licking his lips like a hyena? Or was this the result of overconfidence? After all, the territory that they'd taken, while it was probably useful, was also basically a big open plain. And while that was close to their lands, it would be a bitch to hold. And history would prove that actually, it was kind of impossible for Wessex to hold it. And over time, Mercia would annex it bit by bit. Geography. It's a serious factor in what you can and can't rule in the Anglo-Saxon economic situation. So why did they go take it? I don't know. But what stands out to me is the absence of Chalin. Here we have a great victory and a massive acquisition of territory. And we know that Chalin is a Bretwalda. Yet he's nowhere to be seen, and Cuthwolf is taking the glory. What's with that? Was Chalin taking care of the affairs of state? Was he keeping an eye on Athelbert? Was he keeping his eye on a tasty steak dinner? Who knows? But it's Cuthwolf, not Chalin, that wins the day. But Wessex isn't the only kingdom that has things going on. Over in East Anglia and around this same time, so around 571, Wuffa became king. Now, this region had been settled for quite some time, and it's been argued that East Anglia was the first region to have independent Anglo-Saxon settlers in the 5th century. And there are also some sources that claim that it was Weha, Wulfa's father, who was the first king in East Anglia. But regardless, Wulfa was now in charge. And given the name as well as the building style and art, it looks like there is a strong connection between East Anglia and the people of Scandinavia especially when you look at things like Sutton Hoo. And as a consequence, some have argued that the East Anglian dynasty, the Wuffingas, are actually a branch of an Eastern Swedish dynasty. Others have supposed that they're members of a royal house of the gates. But whoever they were, they were now a dynasty of East Anglia. And let's see what's going on up north in Bernicia. Well, there goes Athelric. But don't worry, we have another son of Ida, Theodric. But we shouldn't be too down on Atheric. He had a rough go of it. Possibly of his own making, though it was probably also kind of his father's fault. The thing is that Bamber, the capital of Bernicia, as well as Lindisfarne, are both located in the territory of the Vododini. Or rather, they were until Ida took over. 
And that wasn't something that it seems like the Brits were too pleased about. And you might remember this region, as well as the Votadini, from the episodes covering Romano-Britannia. This isn't a region that has a rich history of pacifism. They tended to have issues with each other as well as their neighbors. And actually, that might account for how he ended up with the Anglian dynasty in Bernicia in the first place. We hear of other areas reaching out for support from the Germanic tribes. And Bernicia is uncomfortably close to Pictish territory, who we're told were causing a fair amount of trouble for the Brits in the sub-Roman period. And we're told that Ida's grandfather was the first of his line to come to Britain. So perhaps they were invited in, and either rose in power and prestige through the normal channels, or just seized power violently. But regardless of how it happened, Bernicia was now ostensibly Anglian in culture, Ida and a few of his sons were now dead, and it seems like there was no love lost between the remains of that dynasty and the surrounding Brits. And the location of Bernicia just kind of sucks if you're culturally Germanic. To put it all together for you, Bernicia is basically along the eastern coast of Britain in the current English counties of Northumberland and Durham. Diera lies directly to the south, taking roughly the area of Yorkshire. So that's the culturally Anglian territory. And they were basically surrounded by the Brits. They had Strathclyde to the northwest, Regid to the west, and Elmed to the south. From the rapid shifts in power, as well as the bardic tales that speak of the, quote, frequent loss and great suffering, end quote, we can assume that things were pretty damn rough up in the north. And we have records of at least four British kings fighting against the heirs of Ida. Riddick, who was from Strathclyde, Urien of Regid, Gwalwig, who was probably from Regid as well, and Morkant, who might have been from the Vododini. And while Bamber was probably more of a fortress than a town center, Bernicia itself was probably rather rural like most of Britain, and the territory controlled by the king of Bernicia probably stretched from Diera to the south all the way up to Hadrian's Wall in the north. And that level of land grab probably didn't do anything to help the diplomatic relations with their neighbors. But on the upside, the Bernicians were almost certainly receiving some sort of assistance from their Anglian neighbors to the south, the kingdom of Diera. Though what that support was and how effective it might have been isn't clear. Whatever it was, it was probably just barely enough since they do seem to have been holding on, but not doing well enough to have had, you know, healthy lifespans. Which, of course, brings us back to Athelric. Poor Athelric, the third son of Ida to get booted off the throne, and probably the third son to die on the throne. Now, how did he die? We aren't told. But in addition to shoddy living conditions, there were a variety of risk factors that he had to deal with by virtue of his birth. So yeah, another son of Ida is down. But before he croaked, he had a son, Athelfrith, who we're going to hear more about later. So that's good, I suppose. So it's about 571, and Athelric's brother, Theodoric, takes the throne of Bernicia. Maybe. These dates are rough approximations. According to tradition, Theodoric was involved in some amount of conflict with the British Kingdom of Regid, and the King of Regid at that time was Urien. And from what I mentioned earlier, we know that he's one of the kings that's going to fight with Bernicia. So we know that things are going to go down between the two kingdoms. And at some point in the 570s-ish, Urien of Regid raided deep into the Midlands. 
And this is an excellent example of the way things weren't predestined at this point. The Anglian kingdoms in the north were holding on by the skin of their teeth. In fact, things were so bad that Urien and his allies managed to push King Theodric and his sons all the way back to Lindisfarne, where they besieged them for three days. However, these were British kingdoms, so you know how it's going to go. And you know that this is roughly the territory that used to be held by the Brigantes under Cardamandua and Venutius. So you can be reasonably sure that something petty and stupid is going to have to tear this whole thing apart and snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Well, don't worry. One of Urien's allies, Morkant, who was probably a prince of the Vododini, has you covered on that front. It seems that Morkant was jealous of the glory going to Urien, and Urien was pretty badass, what with all that raiding and stuff. And so, acting like a small-minded fool, Morkant assassinated him. Which, incidentally, isn't exactly glorious, so if Morkant was hoping to boost his stature, he failed. But hey, at least he didn't screw up the Siege of Lindisfarne. Oh wait, it totally screwed up the Siege of Lindisfarne. And Theodric and his family got away. Well done, Morkant. So, despite the history of Bernicia so far, what with all the suffering and stuff we've been hearing about, here we have a lucky turn for the Bernician forces. But don't forget that we're talking about a son of Ida, so I don't think that this victory will save Theodric's life in the long run. Alright, so how about back down south? What's going on there? Well, things aren't placid there either. So Chalin, remember him? Well, he's still running the show down in Wessex, and it's time for Wessex to really start expanding. He's a Bretwald, after all, and he can't let Cuthwolf have all this glory. He's going to have to start actually doing his job rather than just sitting around eating steak dinners and contemplating his navel. So King Chalin of Wessex and his son Cuthwine, who some have argued is the same person as Cutha, invaded the British-held lands of their neighbors to the west. We can assume that they probably only brought their war bands, and so their numbers were relatively small. And we have already discussed how these conflicts tended to involve less than 100 men per side. And by taking only the warband, he might have avoided the issues that come with calling up non-professional soldiers. With the Werod, this was their purpose, and they were trained for battle both physically and mentally. But the militia? Sure, it might boost Chalin's numbers significantly, but simply putting a spear in a farmer's hands doesn't make a warrior. How do you get these farmers to agree to risk their lives for you? After all, this was more than a spontaneous fight. This was an invasion, which meant that it might involve more than one battle and would likely be at least prolonged over the course of multiple days. You see, here's the thing. Getting someone to fight when they're angry isn't really a major feat. People have been doing that ever since the first caveman invented trolling by making fun of his cavemate's hairy feet. But fighting when angry is very different from going to war. Anger doesn't last long, especially when the fear kicks in. So if Chalin decided to bring the militia, how would he have overcome that fear and got them to fight once the anger faded? Would he have appealed to the righteousness of their cause? Or maybe impress upon them how evil the Brits were? Or perhaps he could have held the fear of attack over them by telling them that their families would be in danger if they lost because these ravening Brits can come rolling in and just grab them all up. Or maybe he just insisted that if they didn't fight, that he personally would ensure that their families were in danger. There really are a variety of ways that war leaders have implored their soldiers to fight in wars for them. And you see a lot of these methods in famous rallying speeches that generals give before battle. But all in all, it was probably a pain in the butt. 
And also, it would have introduced an incredibly unpredictable element. So consistent with warfare from this period, Chotland probably just brought his professional soldiers and thanes with him, which meant that the Wessex army marching across the border was probably pretty small. Now, we don't have a ton of records regarding this conflict, but some historians have argued that the men of Wessex might have done what we talked about earlier in this episode. March into the enemy territory, take a well-known location, and then do the Anglo-Saxon version of chicken noises while they waited for battle. The location in this case might have been Hinton Hill in Avon Valley. Since it would have been very visible, and it would have disrupted movement and communication between Gloucester and Cirencester. Consequently, the British kings couldn't just sit around and let them get away with this. It was damaging their ability to move, hampering their communication, and also it was absolutely undermining the legitimacy of their rule. Something had to be done. So we're told that three kings, Conmail, Condedon, and Fairmail, all went out to meet the men of Wessex in battle. Now, were these actually kings? Probably not. They were probably leaders of their communities and closer to, like, mayors. But the record calls them kings, so we're going to call them kings. And as for what the battle looked like, we aren't told much. In fact, we really aren't told anything. But it probably took place in summer, since that was the campaigning season, and it probably involved a hell of a lot of chest-thumping. Halsall makes an interesting argument that a lot of conflict from the Anglo-Saxon period might have been essentially shows of force, and was probably vaguely symbolic in nature. You march in, you make your show of force by your sheer presence, maybe you do some raiding, but as for outright battle, like the serious blood and guts, we're going to fight professional warriors, well that might have been rather uncommon due to the practice of the gaffal, or what the Romans would have called tribute. Ugh, that's a rather large warband you have there, Cuthbert. I don't suppose you'd be interested in this replica of Narsil, would you? You look like you might be a Tolkien fan. Would you just please take this and go away? It's mint in box. That sort of thing. And that could account for why there aren't a ton of battles recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle relative to the time they cover. And also, we're not finding a ridiculous number of graves containing bodies with war wounds. However, you've got all these war bands running around. So maybe they were just careful to avoid serious risk to life and limb unless absolutely necessary. They just flex a little pose a bit, and then whoever won would get a present, and that would be the end of it. Except when that wasn't the end of it, such as in this situation where we have a real battle. Now, Halsall has another interesting argument regarding what happens when these schoolyard posturing contests broke down. He suggests that warfare might have been ritualized, and there might have been some sort of sense of fair play where both sides would meet on even ground, organize, and then hash it out. And in later battles, we do see the Anglo-Saxons giving up advantages, such as allowing the Norse to cross the river and form up at the Battle of Malden. Now, they probably could have won that battle had they actually used their advantage. But maybe the Anglo-Saxons were just approaching warfare with a sense of propriety and fair play. Whereas the Norse, <laughs> they didn't care. Anyway, back to this battle. Further reinforcing that sense of ritual, Paulington pointed out that later on, in Norse sagas, we hear of battles being marked out with hazelwood sprigs, and anyone leaving the area before the matter was decided would be greatly shamed. I mean, when you think about it, the sense of fair play, even grounds, and what sounds a little bit like just marking out a field of play for a soccer game, well, it seems almost kind of chivalric to me. 
which might surprise you given that many people assume that this was a dark and brutal period. So getting back to our fight with Chalin and the Brits. Perhaps, given this sense of fair play, Chalin might have let the Brits form up before battle. And maybe the area was even marked out. We aren't told, though. What we are told is that he was victorious, and that Conmail, Condadon, and Fairmail were all killed. And as a result, Gloucester, Sirencester, and Bath were all brought under Chalin's control. Go Team Wessex! Now this was really important because it meant that it cut the Welsh off from parts of the Midlands, as well as from their allies in Cornwall, and no one wants to lose access to Cornwall. Moreover, the Valley of the Lower Severn was now open to the West Saxon colonists. The territory, though, would be pretty hard for the West Saxons to control, given the distance and geographical problems. And within a hundred years, it would actually be under Mercian control. So, um, go Team Mercia, I guess? However, that doesn't take away from the main issue here, which is that this was a major turning point in favor of the English against the Welsh, as the new lands formed a wedge between Cornwall, which was known as Dumnonia at the time, and Wales. So I guess to be a little bit more clear here, we should say, go team, not Wales. Meanwhile, right around this period, Wuffa, king of East Anglia, died, and was succeeded by his son, Titilla. Now this guy isn't too notable, largely because few bother to note him, but he ends up having a son that you will recognize, Raidwald possibly the king who was buried at Sutton Hoo. Anyway, before I end this episode, why don't we have a look at what's going on up in the north? Oh dear, Theodric is dead. According to the tales, it seems that King Theodric got into a scuffle with Owain Maburian of Regid. For those of you who aren't up on your old British, that translates to Owain son of Urian. Now why were Theodric and Owain fighting? Well, it isn't clear, but it's probably for the same reasons that their predecessors were fighting. I'm guessing they didn't like each other. Well, as a result of this conflict, Theodric clearly thought he had the upper hand on Owain, and so he wanted some hostages before he put an end to the fighting. And honestly, that isn't too crazy of an idea, since fighting Bernicia seems to have been a family business in Regid. But Owain had a different perspective, and that perspective can be summed up with the following phrase. F**k Bernicia. Now this did not sit too well with King Theodred, and so he attacked. And our sources on this are few and far between, but my guess is the reason that he decided to attack is that he forgot that he was a son of Ida. And of course, it didn't go too well. And now it's 579, and we have another son of Ida, Frithuwald, who is now the king of Bernicia. You know, given how things are going in the north, it's probably a good thing that Ida had so many sons. And speaking about that... We don't know anything about his partner, or partners, but my guess is, given the number of sons he has, because we're not done with him yet, like Tupac, he got around. And now that I've managed to work Tupac into a history show, I'm pretty happy with this one. Thanks for listening.